It's your time to Ed Up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business. This is Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts. Welcome to Ed Up Legal. This is Patty Roberts from St. Mary's University School of Law. And today's guest is Brian Gallini. He's the Dean of Willamette School of Law in Salem, Oregon. And welcome, Dean Gallini. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really excited to have you as a guest. Several people have recommended that you would be a great person to talk to for a number of reasons. But one thing I think our guests would like to hear about, you and I started the same time, 2020, and it was a crazy time for our country because the pandemic was in full swing or starting up. And uh, and so you made the transition from the University of Arkansas School of Law, where you had been held a lot of administrative roles or a number of administrative roles as well as been a member of the faculty. So what was that transition like for you and your family from Arkansas to Oregon? Well, I like to joke that although it was true that I moved during a toilet paper shortage and everyone can remember that, they all have their own experience with it. I think it was an interesting time for so many reasons to move in part because we all share that experience, we all share that memory. But I think as Dean, I have actually been thankful that I didn't lead in this capacity prior to the pandemic. I only know pandemic leadership. And in some ways- That's really interesting. That's an interesting perspective, why? Well, that lens allows me to not lament the way it was, and it allows me to really focus on what it can be. And I think having that as a thesis and having sort of that frame and be unburdened by, well, I used to lead this way. This is what the pandemic did to my vision and, and to these particular innovations that the school is engaged in. I, I wasn't, and, and we haven't been uh, burdened with that. And, and it really has allowed us to kind of say, all right, this has happened. How can we accelerate innovation within this space? Understanding that there's been an inordinate impact on all sorts of students, faculty, alums, the legal profession writ large, but how can we help? How can we innovate to create uh, spaces for our law students to be successful in this new reality? So I think that lens has really been the focus of the jumping off point for a lot of how we've thought about what we've done. Well, I appreciate that perspective. And and I think there's some real truth to that. I mean, if if you were comparing these last two and a half years to maybe a five-year, very successful run, I mean, it just would stop you in your tracks, right? But yes. we just had to transition any way we thought we could <laughs> as new I deep. think that's right. Well yeah. said. Uh, so when you decided to leave the University of Arkansas for Willamette, what attracted you? Well, I guess all sorts of um, all sorts of things. I think to begin with, I, I knew I wanted to move into uh, a dean role at some point in my career. Um, and, and we all, as you know, all, every dean has kind of their own story of what makes sense timing-wise. And a lot of people look at me like I'm crazy because I have two young kids and, and probably they're right. But at the same time, I felt like, as you know, this is a job that demands a lot of energy and a lot of attention. And, and I felt like 
I have the energy level and I have that that to give right now, but I don't take that for granted. I don't assume that that is an endless supply, uh, but my iPhone battery is high right now and it has stayed uh, as such. And so from the timing standpoint, I knew that it felt right in, in the portion of my career. And then you mentioned service and other administrative positions. Those terms, those incremental terms had sort of been building into an increased portfolio that just made this next step uh, a logical one. And then in terms of, of why Willamette, I was fortunate enough to, to have some you know, different schools to think about. And I think one of the things that, that really jumped out at me for this university is its focus on kind of innovation, change, being nimble, being flexible. And a lot of that matches how I think of my leadership philosophy and just my kind of crazy lab scientist brain to begin with. You know, I want to tinker, I want to improve, I want to think about how we do things differently each time and not at the expense of what we're doing well, but not assuming that what we've been doing for years over years over years is the right way to do it. And I really felt like as a candidate, that connected with kind of the ethos and the DNA of the institution. That's great. So not one to just accept the status quo. Um, and can you give us some examples of maybe what you've been able to do at Willamette since you arrived that demonstrates that nimbleness and that innovation? Well, I think apart from rethinking how to run a law school from scratch amid the pandemic, and I know you lived that too, so I'll, I'll leave that part out. Uh, we've really been tinkering uh, and, you know, some might say breaking China or reassembling it, de depending on how you, you frame it in, in the admission space. Um, the, the faculty hiring space, how we support faculty in terms of, you know, the tenure policies and faculty equity, and then in the career services space. And then, of course, in, in licensure. So those are kind of the areas that, that we have really put a critical eye and asked ourselves and really challenged ourselves to say, are these, these particular approaches the right way to do it? And I guess I'll, I'll give one illustrative example. In the admission space, we've really tried to turn what we were doing, which I don't think is dissimilar from other law schools, kind of rolling out the banner, showing up at fairs, answering law student questions. And we've tried to be far more proactive and partner with uh, institutions where we really feel like we can provide what we call a mentorship-based approach to admission that has a couple of core pieces. So one is transparency in matriculation standards, transparency part two would be in scholarshiping. And then number three, that mentorship-based approach. So we uh, when we engage in these partnerships, our admissions team serves as a pre-law advisor to the particular partner school. So if you look at our list of partner institutions, they are all institutions that do not have uh, a law school attached. So what we're trying to do is take the old model of admission and again, put it aside, be more proactive, and in the mentorship space say, well, we hope at the end of this you choose us, but that's not really why we're in it. We're in it from the service-based piece and to bring more transparency into law school admissions. That's a, a very interesting idea that that proactive approach. Um, and I guess uh, I wonder how far afield are you going? Are you sticking to Oregon uh, universities? Are you looking nationally? How, is, how are you choosing your partners? So it kind of falls in this part of the vision falls in kind of three very large buckets. Large bucket one is, let's look at the, what, what does the data tell us about who's coming to Willamette? 
you know, if we looked back five, seven years, which ones are the schools that bubble to the top? And if we haven't been proactive in the past, how could we be proactive in interacting with students from those institutions? If they're interested in our law school to begin with, it just makes sense that we would go to them, provide individualized programming, and assist in their enrollment journeys in a more transparent way. So there is a list of schools out there that we have focused on, or kind of bucket one. And then two uh, is really our Alaska initiative. So this institution for many, many years had a proud history and relationship with a number of the Alaska public schools, but our uh, admission numbers have really kind of gone down in recent years. And we wanted to pause, look at that relationship with more intentionality or increased intentionality rather, and think about how we could serve uh, the publics at, in the state of Alaska. And over about 18 months, about two months ago, we just finished signing our third and final relationship. Uh, we now have a relationship with each of the public schools in Alaska to kind of softly call ourselves Alaska's Law School, at least thinking about us being a touch point for undergraduate students there. And then bucket three, which is what we'll just start looking at is you know, where are the other states where we find alumni presence predominantly? Uh, and for us, that would include states like uh, the state of Washington, Hawaii, uh, Nevada, and Utah in, in no particular order there. So we just finished what I would call bucket two, and we have yet to begin that, that third bucket, but more to come. Well, and I know you're um, not long in your tenure. We're both just starting our third year, but are you seeing any results yet from your admissions mentorship plan, and, and what are those results looking like? So yes, in two ways, uh, one of which is by providing intentional admission programming to the partner schools. Uh, we are bringing those students, generally speaking for the regional schools, to us to engage in the programming. And we have found an increase in applications from our partner institutions. And as a result, we have, um, although we can't bring the same group of uh, students from Alaska to us, we have traveled to Alaska to do mock classes, to do pre-law advising, and we have seen an uptick in applicants from two of the three Alaska publics. The third simply did not have the relationship in time for this particular uh, enrollment year, uh, which then has, has increased the number of students from those, those uh, institutions. The second way we've seen, and this was a little bit more, I'd love to say was a matter of intention, but we've seen students transfer in uh, to our institution, mostly on the Alaska side, so um, that would be the second way. And that has been a, a pleasant surprise that some students have noticed what we're doing in the intentional partnerships that, well, I'm, I'm interested in being in a, at an institution that's placing focus on those regional spaces. That it would be unexpected, but, um, but what a wonderful surprise, as you said. In addition to the admission space um, and where you've been innovating there, I know that you have become a national voice for alternative licensing, and you've been working diligently in Oregon to explore alternative pathways with the court and the board. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the progress in that space? Sure, and this thank you for, for saying that. It's, uh, of course, a big conversation. I think I would start with a mea culpa. I started this journey two plus years ago on the, the pathway to reform. And I used the word alternative, which is now a word that I'm trying to chase away from the vernacular because I realized 
in hundreds of hours of conversations like this, when I was saying alternatives to the bar, it was letting the current bar exam off the hook. It was like, oh, this, this exam is fine. We'll just look at something else. And so I have really challenged myself in particular to call all of it licensure reform because uh, we have, of course, as you know, the, the uh, NCBE engaged in the next gen bar exam and we wanna be supportive of that reform effort, but not assume that the, the exam in its current form is, um, is the right one. But, but in any event, that aside, this began back in the summer of 2020 when, uh, of course, the uh, pandemic was in, um, you know, kind of full scale or scaling up at that time. And the idea of an in-person bar was something of an intimidating prospect for, for those administering it. And those certainly, of course, for those who were taking it. And the three deans here in Arkansas, or, uh, in Oregon, rather, uh, partnered together to uh, draft a submission to the court requesting emergency one-time diploma privilege. And in July of 2020, the court voted by 4-3 margin to grant our request. And if you fast forward a couple months after that to the Oregon State Supreme Court's credit and its, its openness to kind of thinking about what licensure, a new world of licensure could look like, our Chief Justice, Chief Justice Martha Walters, charged a group with exploring whether there was something more durable, not diploma privilege, uh, that might be appropriate to serve Oregonians. And from that charge uh, across two years, culminating in January's unanimous vote from the state Supreme Court, uh, a group of about 30 people from all three law schools, administrators, students, and members of affinity bars, uh, members of the judiciary, practicing attorneys, all kind of came together to put our heads together and explore all things licensure. And what emerged was two things. One, the Oregon Experiential Pathway, which is a two-year curriculum-based pathway to licensure where students produce a portfolio that's evaluated by the Board of Bar Examiners. And the second of which, which doesn't impact law schools as much, is the supervised practice pathway. So 1,000 to 1,500 hours worth of work, ideally set up for an out-of-state attorney to come in-state, produce a portfolio that would likewise be uh, evaluated by the Board of Bar Examiners. So all of that work is what I call the conceptual phase. And we have moved now into the implementation phase. So by essentially mid-fall, we need to have something more than a, a ball of clay to report back to the court on and indicate uh, with particularity where our direction is headed. So I'm particularly fascinated about the Oregon experiential pathway, and you indicated there's a, a capstone and a portfolio um, and uh, that it's a two-year um, program. Where does that fit in the law school journey? Well, with an important caveat that um, I, I don't speak for the whole committee, and because as and you know, it's just conceptual, right? It's just and it's just conceptual, and I don't speak for the whole faculty, uh, so I will just say where I think we're headed. Um, number one, a student's first year would not change. Uh, number two, at the end of the first year, a student would raise their hand and say, you know, like I would declare for a college major, I declare for the experiential pathway, which would set that student on a curricular journey of two years of classes that do happily overlap, and this is intentional, with a number of the core doctrinal classes we would imagine a student taking in preparation for the traditional bar, with a couple of important changes, one of which is, although the ABA, as you know, requires six credits of experiential learning, this pathway requires 15 credits, no more, of, uh, no more than six of which can be earned via externship. 
So it puts the onus on law schools to scale up the two other kinds of experiential learning, clinic and simulation learning. And then the second big uh, change is this idea of a capstone. So by the end of the student's time in law school, they will need to have taken this capstone course during which time or lead up to the time they produce a portfolio. And that portfolio is the one that's evaluated by the Board of Bar Examiners for thumbs up or down determination, just like the traditional bar exam for a minimum competence determination. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Uh, so it reminds me a little bit of what they do at the, the University of New Hampshire. Um, Correct. And I know there with their portfolio, it's it's a pretty small group. The, the Daniel yep. Webster Scholars, I think it's called. Good memory. Um, it's uh, they're they're doing phenomenally well. They're you know people really want to hire them, um, and it's become a, quite an impressive um, leader in licensing. Uh, I won't say alternatives reform, <laughs> um, but it is. I think if I'm remembering correctly, uh, a couple of dozen students. And so for the Oregon law schools, um, how do you think the sizes will look for the law students who are able to take advantage of this? It's such an important question. And I guess I would begin where you did, which is to, to shout out and to praise the Daniel Webster Scholars Program and in particular to say thank you to Dean Megan Carpenter for her guidance and advice. In the conceptual phase, we did have some conversations and it, we learned a lot, uh, the Oregon Committee that is, from what uh, New Hampshire is doing. There are two main differences to our effort, one of which is, the, as you said, Daniel Webster Scholars Program, ours will not be uh, a scholarship-based program, which does raise what you're pushing, the thread you're pulling at, which is the scaling thread, and I'll come back to that in a second. And then the second big difference is uh, the Daniel Webster Scholars Program focuses on a litigation track in a way that our program aspirationally will not be discipline or practice-based specific so that students have some, some choice there. Um, to, the, to the scaling question, this is the $10 million, $10,000, whatever question. I do have thoughts on how we'll scale up, but I think the best way to answer it in the short term is to say we will begin with a pilot program because the goal is to nail the pilot program and put down a dish of scalability and to be able to be invested enough that it's stable, but not so much that we can't make adjustments to build out more capacity for students. So right. the way I, th I think that plays out for a school of our size is a pilot of approximately 15 to 20 students in the first year, and then scaling up on that basis up until the other $10 million question I'm asked quite often, which is what do you think the market demand will be of students? To which I respond, shoulder shrug emoji, because I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I believe in the product, but I think it's going to take time for the product to speak for itself. But we want to match the scaling as the excitement for the product goes up. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it, it's hard to imagine what the scalability can be when you think that we as law schools could say, oh yeah, we're gonna scale up our experiential learning. We're gonna add clinics. We're gonna make sure we can have every student who wants to do this, do this. But because the board of law examiners will be the ones ultimately reviewing each of these portfolios, you've, you you will have a limit because they won't be able to do a you know, uh, tremendous amount, I would think in any particular cycle. Well, that's right. And I'll throw in the additional challenge, apart from the review side, is on the law school curriculum side. The more simulation classes, the fewer students who are in those classes, 
the more faculty resources to teach those classes, yes. which is kind of the opposite of being able to put, you know, 80 to 100 students in for a traditional podium style class. So untangling those puzzle pieces is, is absolutely a challenge unto itself. Well, I really appreciate what, what you and your colleagues are doing in Oregon. Um, it's certainly um, the time is ripe for having reform. And, um, and I appreciate that you all are, are taking a look at it so carefully and that you'll have a, a pilot that we can all look to. Uh, and I appreciate the forward thinking of your chief justice. I mean, how great that after the pandemic and diploma privilege, she said, what else? What else can we do? Um, so good for her. No, well said. I agree with you. Thank you for your leadership in that. Um, so one of the things that's interesting about your background, because it's not usually something that's in the uh, or on the CV of a dean of a law school, is that you, for more than a decade, were the head coach for two men's college ice hockey teams. You had tremendous success, um, and you were uh, you had more than 200 wins during separate tenures with the University of Pennsylvania and Arkansas. And I guess what I'd like to know is how did that experience um, coaching impact your dean leadership, if at all? I would say there's no single more impactful experience for me personally than having had the privilege of, of coaching at the college level uh, for 11 years. I really gained an appreciation for the need to have an overarching philosophy for what an organization is supposed to accomplish and then to have a better understanding of how to disseminate that philosophy how to create a culture and how to be intentional about creating a culture and how to do it from um, a perspective that really values the contributions of everyone. And I think for me, I'm just speaking from my experience, uh, a, a hockey locker room is a place where there can be an extraordinary amount of talent, but if you can't string it together, then the product that you put on the ice will look like that. And I have had teams that on paper, had no business performing at the level that they did. And I've also been on the other side of that, teams that underperformed. And the common denominator is the ability that I had or didn't in some cases to bring a group of dramatically disparate backgrounds, differential perspectives together in a really high intensity environment where disagreement was common and split deck second decisions had to be made with high consequence in terms of the result. And to figure that out, and I, realized as dean that there are so many analogs except the difference one of the happy differences is i have a little bit more time to think about some of the decisions that impact a result and that i think has been key at least to the way that i think about about leading i guess i would throw one more thing in there which is that my coaching background was was totally by accident uh, i was many 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 years ago clerking in uh, in the state of michigan and I applied to all sorts of places for post-clerkship. And I was lucky enough that Temple took a chance on me for my fellowship, my two-year teaching fellowship, my entry into academia, the Friedman Fellow Program. And on a lark, I, so I had been coaching at a high school team. There was an assistant position open for the University of Pennsylvania. And it was just a volunteer assistant. I thought well, this would be you know, enjoyable. Uh, Philadelphia, as you know, is like an L and Penn is West Philly and Temple's North. So I thought, okay, I can kind of make my way and about seven games in uh, that season, I got the job. And about seven games in, the head coach was relieved and 
it was a, a Saturday and the athletic director called and said, well, would you be interested? And keep in mind, I was in my late twenties. I, you know, I had no idea. And wow. I just reflectively said, yes. And 6 a.m. the next day at practice, I was the head coach. And I had a, a legal, I still kept the page, you know, written down, handwritten on a, a yellow legal pad of what the practice plan was going to be. And truly from humble beginnings. And all of those lessons coming at me so quickly, I think gave me a foundation for what I take with me today. Well, I love that story. And it's um, one of those stories that I think is very demonstrative for our students, right? You, you've got to say yes. You've got to be willing to, to volunteer and to maybe push it outside your comfort zone. And then when the opportunities come up, just reflectively say yes, and amazing things can happen. Um, so good for you for doing that. But I wanted to ask a follow-up question on, on creating a culture. If you were advising, uh, say, a, a new dean um, on how to start in the creation of a culture, what sort of advice would you give? The first place to start is, I have a lot of strong opinions about this. The first place to start is development of your own personal philosophy. I think it's really important to have an understanding of who you are as a leader, who you're not, what your strengths are, where you feel like you have value added, but correspondingly where you don't. I think we could have a whole separate conversation about modeling vulnerability and what that looks like and why it's important in leadership positions, but it starts with understanding your perspective. And then step two, is honestly shutting up, listening to your community for a long period of time and identifying what I call feedback loops at some point. You know, that I remember being taught as a 1L, you know, you've, you've exhausted your research when you start finding the same case over and over and over again. I remember well, that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it turns out as Dean, you know, you find your feedback loops when the community has told you the same thing over and over again. And those loops provide some connective tissue that's community specific for understanding where you can match at step three, your values to what the community needs. And if you understand where you contribute and where you don't, the where you don't is where your team fits and how you think about building out your team to address where you're weak and folks who can tell you, this is what I can do. This is, and, and you can own this, right? And you can say this, is what I can't do. And this is where you have to tell me where I'm overstepping or where I've gotten it wrong. So those would be my kind of three high level steps for for starting. Great advice. Thank you for that. We wrap up um, every episode of Ed Up Legal with the same question. And um, that question is, what do you predict the evolution of legal education will be in the coming decade? How do you think it is likely to change? And if the answer is different, how should it change? My aspirational vision would be that 10 years from now, we have an empirically accepted definition for minimum competence that outlines with transparency and clarity what the measurable skills are for newly licensed lawyers. And we do a better job connecting a legal education to those skills. And again, we do it in a way that's transparency and is transparent and builds confidence both in our students, but, but also in the public for the rule of law and the strength and trust that we expect the public to have in the rule of law. Do you think we'll get there? That's our jobs, Dean. <laughs> we will. 
That's right. Yeah. That is our job. Before we conclude, I just wanted to ask you, you mentioned your, your young boys. How old are they? They're both eight, and we will start uh, third grade here in just a couple of weeks. Very exciting. Uh, do they enjoy Oregon? They do. Um, for all sorts of different reasons, they're both fundamentally outdoor uh, kids. So I think being in a space with, with such beautiful surroundings is really compelling. When Salem is about an hour and a half from the coast, you don't call it the beach, I found out, got in trouble oh. for that. They're about an hour and a half from the coast, and then about an hour and a half from the mountains, and then about an hour from Portland. So there's always, you know, a little something to keep you occupied outdoors, uh, no matter the season. Sounds like a perfect location. It's beautiful. Well, good luck as the new year starts. Thanks so much for sharing um, your experience with us. And um, I've enjoyed having you as a guest. Well, thank you for the opportunity and best wishes for a great year as well. Thank you. This has been another episode of Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. Ed Up Legal is part of the Ed Up Experience Podcast Network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at Ed Up, we make education your business.